Well, good morning again. I read a story uh, uh, about uh, Ukrainian refugees. Uh, largest Ukrainian population in the United States is in, the, in New York City. It's about 150,000 people. And a lot of them came as Christian refugees for those who were feeling like the Soviet religious persecution so many years ago. More recently, though, with all the trouble going on, when, uh, when Vladimir Putin put his nuclear forces on high alert, some took to the streets to join protests over that. And mostly, though, the, the followers of Jesus, they gathered in churches to pray, to weep, to lament, to sing to God. They called their praise songs weapons of war. Worship leaders said, our hope is in the Lord, the one who holds things together. No matter how things fall apart, the Lord created this world and he holds things in his hands. And he played music and he led worship through tears. He also told his church family, you know, even if a nuclear attack happens, the hope we have is we go home and we will be together with Jesus, the one we know will help us. Their hope is in the Lord and that even if they should die, they'd be okay because they would be at home with Jesus. Move this out of the way so I don't trip over it. There we go. Has a beautiful witness and testimony, right? It's not unlike what we see with the early Christians in response to the opposition that they're starting to face as we continue reading in the book of Acts. The last couple of weeks, we've really been kind of looking in one story that's early on in the book of Acts that focuses on Peter and John. In, in chapter 3, they went up to the temple to pray during an afternoon. Uh, during the afternoon prayer at 3 p.m. And uh, on the way, they encountered this man who was begging for charity, who had been lame since the day of his birth. And that was over 40 years before this time. And Peter and John, they stop, they look at the man, and then they offer him something other than money, something better than money, because they didn't have any money, they said. But they healed him in the name of Jesus Christ. And following the healing, and after the time of prayer, a lot of people came and and they wanted to see what had happened. And so Peter used that opportunity to preach the good news of Christ's death and resurrection and that they could repent and follow Jesus. And so 2,000 or so people believed and were added to their number, which brought that total to around 5,000 just early on in the church's life. However, there were some Pharisees and Sadducees, priests, captain of the temple guard who heard the preaching And they arrested Peter and John, and they kept them in jail overnight. And then the next day, the two apostles were put before the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling council of priests and teachers of the law. And the Sanhedrin, they wanted to know one question, really. They're like, whose powers are you doing this in? Whose name are you healing these people? Whose authority? And Peter, he's incredibly direct when he said, It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you, the Sanhedrin, killed, but God raised from the dead. That's how this man was healed. And the leaders, they're kind of stuck. They were handcuffed because all the people had seen the healing, and they were praising God because of it. And so they told Peter and John, you know what, just don't preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And Peter and John are like, no. (laughs) They said that if, if they had to choose between either listening to God or these guys, then they had no choice, really, but to listen to God. And they said, we can't help but speaking, but to speak about what we've already seen and heard. 
Leaders threatened them, but they couldn't really figure out how to punish them anymore, and so they let them go. But now things have changed for the early church. They're reminded that they were going to face trials and persecution. How would they handle that? What will it do to the community? That's what we're going to see today as we continue in our sermon series in the book of Acts. So we're going to be in chapter 4, verse 23, to start it off. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. So the first thing that Peter and John did was basically just go back and tell everybody what had happened. Now, most of the commentators that I read suggest that they're going back to a smaller group, not necessarily like all 5,000 of the new Christians and everything. Um, But this is a smaller number. Maybe it's the 120 who were originally together. Maybe it's just the 12. We don't really know. We're not told, but it's probably not the 5,000. But they report on everything that had happened that day as they, or the past couple days as they went up to the temple for prayer. But most importantly, they told them about what the elders and chiefs, chief priests had told them to do, basically to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And I'm sure the threats were also reported on. But after hearing the news, after hearing what they had done and what they had said, what was the response? Well, it was to immediately go to the Lord in prayer. Verse says they raised their voices together in prayer to God. A common practice in biblical times would have been kind of similar to what we do, where one person is praying, the rest of the people, community, would give what one would call like an audible assent, saying amen. Amen's a Hebrew term that has a meaning of like truly, surely, let it be so. So it's probable that one person is praying the prayer and everybody else is saying amen or yes, Lord, as they participate. But ultimately, what it shows is there's still a unity in the early church. And they're coming together in prayer after this incident, after being threatened, being told not to do the very thing that Jesus had commanded them to do. There was unity among them as they prayed. But what did they pray? Well, we're going to see that this prayer is based in God's word. We continue in verse, uh, the second part of verse 24, where it says, Sovereign Lord, they said, You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the servants or and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So the first thing they do in this prayer is they start by focusing on the sovereignty of God. Right? The word that is translated sovereign Lord is despotes in Greek, which is the base for the English word despot. Now, usually when we think of a despot, we think of somebody who's like holding absolute power and doesn't really use it in a good way. Like they're, they're cruel when they use their power. But it doesn't have to be used that way. The main meaning is just somebody that has absolute power. And that could also be used for good as well. And especially when it's God who is the ultimate good. It's not a bad thing. And that's what they mean when they call God sovereign Lord, that he has absolute power and authority in their lives. 
And they indicate this by looking at creation. They said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. The one who is creator is sovereign over the created, right? Like, it just makes sense that God, who created everything that we see, feel, touch, smell, hear, would be more powerful than what is created and the rightful Lord over it. And so they just start there. They put God in the correct frame of mind for themselves as sovereign. And then they quote the passage from Scripture. It's Psalm 2. It's first two verses of Psalm 2, verse 3 almost. But um, So I'm going to... Put that up on the screen, Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. So they look at what's happened in the trial. The apostles, the, the people who are praying there, they're, they're looking at what happened in the trial of Jesus where, and the crucifixion where you have Herod Antipas, who was the tetrarch or the ruler of Galilee, You've got Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea. And then more generally, you've got the Gentiles and the people of Israel together. And they are all conspiring against Jesus, whom the Lord anointed. So you can see where, where as they're praying, they, they're making these connections. They're seeing what David said being fulfilled in Christ and in his death. But let me read the rest of Psalm 2 because they don't quote this, but... I kind of love what it says. In verse 4, it says, The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance the ends of the earth, your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead, you, will lead to your destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So yeah, they, they may have seemingly won the battle when they killed Jesus. But God was using that as part of his plan. As they pray, they say, they did what your power and will decided beforehand should happen. Because that was God's plan. When we think about it, the fact that this was his plan, that should really clue us in on how desperate our situation was. Because what did we need? Think about this. We needed God himself to leave heaven and come and be one of us. Fully human, but fully God. To live a perfect sinless life, 33 years. And then to submit himself to death on a cross. For us, for our sake. Because we have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And if that doesn't humble us, if that doesn't put us in our right place, then we probably need to reprioritize some things. Because that was the plan. And that's what they're praying about. I found it interesting, like, that that's what they're praying about here. That's what they started with. 
They're talking about God's sovereignty. You know, you created everything. You spoke through David about the plan for the Messiah because it was in your sovereign will that all that happened. And now, after they get through that, now, they, after they've reminded themselves of who God is, of his sovereignty, only now do they actually ask him for something. And that's in verse 29, where it says, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. I think that they know there's going to be some difficulty coming. Like they just returned from their arrest and their trial before the Sanhedrin. The very people who were a part of the conspiracy against Christ, which ended up with his death on the cross. And they were warned. They were threatened not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore. But they weren't punished because of the healing and everybody was praising God. But it's not going to stay that way forever. And there's a whole lot of things that they could have prayed for, right? Like they could have asked for protection. They could have asked for comfort. They could have asked, you know, maybe remove these people from, from power. They could have asked for anything related to those lines, right? But they didn't. They said, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Because they know what's coming, but they also know what they have to do. So instead of asking for safety, comfort, whatever, they ask for boldness to keep preaching God's word. To keep being witnesses for Jesus. And they've already been bold, like Peter and John. They were very bold before when talking to the Sanhedrin. But it's going to get harder. And as things get more difficult, you know, we, we can have a tendency to pull back into safety. But it's in that moment that they needed to step forward and be bold for God together in unity. And, and then they ask God to stretch out his hand and to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of Jesus, which he had done, which we saw. We, we read that, right? And to continue doing those things because I think it gave them an opportunity as well to continue living the mission to be witnesses for Christ. Because how much better of an opportunity do you get when You heal somebody in front of somebody, and they're like, what just happened? You're like, Jesus. Peter and John healed one man. Because of that, they were able to witness to 2,000, at least 2,000, and to be heard in front of the religious leaders of the day. In writing about this passage, Warren Wiersbe says, they didn't ask for protection. They asked for power. They didn't ask for fire from heaven to destroy the enemy but for power from heaven to preach the word and heal the sick. Their great desire was for boldness in the face of opposition. The emphasis is on the hand of God at work in the life of the church, not the hand of man at work for God. Believing prayer releases God's power and enables God's hand to move. And then in something that I I feel like is kind of rare, even in Scripture, they got a very immediate answer to their prayer. And the way that it happens, I think, is really cool. Because God answers in verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So they finish up praying, and bam, the place they're at just shakes. And I don't think it's some metaphorical thing that happens. I think the place actually shook. Now, two things kind of came to my mind as I was reading through that. First one is, that'd be really cool, 
right? To be able to get an immediate response to your prayer that shows the power of God. That would be amazing. But that leads to the second thing, because I think that would also be very terrifying. <laughs> because I'm sure, uh, you know, some of you have probably experienced an earthquake before. You know, anytime we have one around here, I'm gone, so I've never felt one. <laughs> I feel let down. Um, but, you know, I think it would have felt like that, right? It felt like an earthquake. And when the ground shakes, you know, that's another reminder that this world is dangerous, Right? And that's like who God is. Yes, he is our father in heaven. Yes, he listens to and answers our prayer. But he is also all-powerful and dangerous. You know, I know I've quoted this before, but I love the quote from Mr. Beaver in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when one of the Pevensey kids asks if Aslan is a safe lion. And he says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. So yeah, I think it would be pretty neat to have that happen, but it would also, it would reinforce a healthy fear of the Lord. After the place was shaken, Luke writes that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Now remember what we said last week when we read that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and he spoke to the Sanhedrin. You know, it wasn't like he was baptized in the Spirit again. He was simply being filled by the Spirit, like a recharge kind of thing, or maybe even just going above and beyond what he already had. And the same is true here. They get a filling from the Spirit. Not that they're baptized again in the Spirit, but through this filling, the Holy Spirit is preparing them, enabling them for what's to come. And the results of this is that they spoke the word of God boldly. They faced opposition, so they prayed to the Lord, and he answered their prayer, enabling them to speak God's word with great boldness. Now, following this prayer, we get a short section here that shows the unity, again, of the early church. Verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. All the believers were, in one, were one in heart and mind. John Wesley puts it this way. He says, their loves, their hopes, their passions joined. Then Luke writes, nobody claimed any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything that they had. And again, like we said a couple of weeks ago when we looked at this, you know, this isn't like Christian communism or anything like that. It wasn't a political viewpoint. It wasn't forced on anybody. It's just simply how they lived. They took seriously the idea of loving your neighbor as yourself or as Jesus commanded to love one another as he had loved them. And they likely looked at their possessions not as something that they owned, but more that they were being stewards of those. And that probably freed them to be able to do some things with those possessions to help others. And it doesn't mean that they had to do this either. This was a voluntary thing. They could own property. They could have possessions. We're going to look at that more next week. But they willingly chose to share what they had. And then the first part of verse 33 says, With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So even in the face of opposition, the apostles are continuing to follow through with their instruction from Jesus to be his witnesses. And it is being done with great power. And it's a reminder that community in and of itself is not the end goal. As one commentator wrote, A vibrant community is a community in mission. 
Community is good, but it is not the end. We continue the second part of verse 33 where it says, And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. So at this point in time, and it's going to change, but we'll see that in the coming weeks, but the apostles were the ones who the money was brought to in the church, and then they distributed the money to those who were in need. And it didn't happen all the time, but it said, you know, from time to time. So probably when there was a need, that need would be met by the early church through sometimes what looks to us like drastic measures. But they trusted the Lord and each other. And we get an example of this in the next couple of verses. Verse 36. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. This is the positive side of the practice. You've got this guy, Barnabas. Joseph, named Barnabas. Son of encouragement. Sells a field that he owned. It probably wasn't a whole lot because he was a Levite. They couldn't really own a lot. And he brings that money to the church. Now next week, this is the positive side. Next week we're going to look at the unfortunate negative side to this. Because we're going to see a husband and a wife who make some very bad choices. And it ends up costing them a whole lot more than what they bargained. So, what do we take home from this today? From this passage? What what can we do this week to try and practice as best we can the principles that we learn when reading this? A couple things that I I came across. I'm sure you, you guys are smart. You can come up with some too. But the first thing is as we face trials, as we face hardship, as we face opposition... And we will, because Jesus said that we would. When that happens, first thing should always be to go to the Lord in prayer. But it's not to pray to remove the opposition or to be able to remain in comfort for ourselves. It's praying that the Lord would give us the boldness to continue in the mission in spite of the opposition, in the face of the opposition. Now, that doesn't mean that we become a jerk when we're talking to people about Jesus. But it's just that we boldly proclaim the name of Jesus and his gospel message, the good news that salvation is found in him alone. And trials will come, but God is bigger than the trials. He is sovereign. He created the universe and everything in it. He will fill you with the Holy Spirit so that you'll be able to boldly proclaim the name of Jesus. E.M. Bounds, in his book on prayer, writes, Here, they were filled with, for this special occasion, with the Holy Spirit. For the answer to prayer was a response to their faith in prayer. The fullness of the Spirit always brings boldness. The cure for fear in the face of threatening enemies of the Lord is being filled with the Spirit. This gives power to speak the word of the Lord with boldness. This gives courage and drives away fear. The second thing that we can practice, or continue to practice, is the sharing of our possessions with those who are in need. You know, last time we talked about this a few weeks ago, I, I bragged on the church because Maple Grove is really good at this. 
whenever there's a need, whenever we learn of a need, because sometimes y'all don't tell us, but whenever we learn of a need, people will rally to help to meet it, whether it means giving money or time, because time is a precious resource anymore, or possessions. You guys, members of Maple Grove, really do try and help out. When somebody needs something, maybe somebody else already has it, they're like, yeah, take it. Give it back when you're done, or just pass it on to the next person. The whole idea, though, is not to get too tied up in your stuff or your money or your time. We just want to be good stewards of it all. It's not ours, really. It's God's. And, and we want to be okay if it doesn't get repaid. You know, for us, as the church, the money that you give us through your offerings, you know, we try and be really good stewards of that. That's why we try and give more than 10% away to missions and other benevolent ventures. That's why at the congregational meeting, we are, we're up front with you and we tell you what we spend it on. Because we want to be good stewards. Because if we're asking you to do it, we should be doing it too as the organization, but also as the leaders of the church as well. J. Hudson Taylor writes about a young man who was called to go into the mission field, to travel to foreign lands, tell people about Jesus. He was concerned, though, this young man, about some things, and so he went to a friend and said, I don't see how God can use me on the field. I have no special talent. And his friend said, my brother, God wants men on the field who can pray. There are too many preachers now, which... That hurts. (laughs) There are too many preachers now and too few prayers. You know, too often we get caught up in doing things. So many things. Even here at the church, that we can neglect other things. We can neglect our prayer life, especially corporately. But that was of first importance for the early Christians. And that's what we're doing in this book of Acts for, is to see what the early Christians were doing and try and realign ourselves with them or to continue to align ourselves with them. You know, Peter and John, they go through their whole ordeal. And then when they get released, they go back to the church and they pray for even more boldness to speak God's word and for God to stretch out his hand to do amazing things, for miracles, to open doors, for people or for, to tell them about Jesus. And, you know, that's what I keep seeing as we read through, as we look at the early church in the book of Acts. It is a, it's a church that's consistently in prayer together. It's a church that's in unity with one another. They take care of one another. They love one another. And it's a church that is boldly proclaiming Christ as Savior. And I look at that and I think, you know what? That's pretty attainable. I think we can do that. These are three things that we can all commit to, right? And so let's do that. Let's commit to being a church that is praying together, that is in unity with one another, that loves one another in such a way. And all of us, all of us are boldly proclaiming Christ as Savior. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, you are amazing. You are awesome, Lord. 
Just like they said in their prayer, Lord, you are the creator of the heavens and the earth and everything in them. You are so far beyond what we can even imagine. But you have you've given us your word to give us to tell us who you are. You love us, Lord. You created us. You made us in your image and you love us. And we are so thankful. And Father, I pray as we continue to move forward here at Maple Grove, that we would continue to model ourselves on the early church. That we would come to you in prayer as a community. That we would be unified, loving one another in a way that the world doesn't even, it doesn't make sense to them. And that we would boldly proclaim the name of your son, Jesus, to those who need to hear. And it's so many in the world right now. So Father, I ask the same thing that the early church asked that you would help us to be bold in the face of opposition, that you would help us to be bold so that we can proclaim the name of Jesus Christ as Savior. We are so thankful, Lord, that you did have a plan so many years ago, that you thought of us and you rescued us through your Son as he went to the cross and died for us. Lord, we come around the table of communion now to remember. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And we do that. We take the bread representing his broken body, the juice representing his blood that was spilled. And we remember the sacrifice that was made, that he left heaven to come and be one of us to die for us. But not just to die, but to come back, conquering death. Thank you, Lord. Thank you so much. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.